He lifts me unto glory. Friends, one of the things about um, singing in church as the one of the primary things about singing in church is about the church singing. That means we are not afraid of having times of just singing a cappella. We want to hear you sing. We want to hear ourselves sing together to the Lord. That's what makes worship beautiful, when the hearts of people sing to the Lord. So when we gather and we sing some of these truths, don't just expect people up front to sing. We want you to sing. We want you to sing joyfully from the heart. Have you ever given anyone a token of appreciation? Think of the last time you have given a token of appreciation to anyone. It could be a really small thing. It could be a card. It could be something that shows the other person that you appreciate them. Whenever you give such a token, you intend to point not to the thing given, but you intend to point to a greater reality that actually cannot be seen with our physical eyes. You, you intend to point to that which is in your heart towards the other person, that appreciation. How do you, how do you make visible that which, which you cannot really touch? How can you make visible that which you cannot really see. That's why we give tokens of appreciation. They are, they're symbols. And yet, they're meaningful symbols. They're, they're something that, that show well. They point clearly to a deeper reality. That's why they are symbols. Tokens, they are tangible pointers to a greater reality of our appreciation. Well, in today's passage, we read about two miracles that Peter did. And their role, the role of these miracles is to function as tokens, as pointers to something bigger. They are tokens of the power of Jesus for salvation. Would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We continue our reading through this book of Acts in chapter 9, verse 32 to 43. If you have um, joined us this morning and you did not bring your Bible, we encourage you to grab a Bible in the pew in front of you. Uh, find a Bible around you, open it up, and if you're using a Bible provided in a pew, uh, you may find this on page number 954. We are currently in a series in the book of Acts, and we uh, look forward to the way God has already spoken to us and the way He continued to speak to His church through this book of Acts. And here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. 
Now there was in Yopa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her up in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer, asking the Lord to speak once again? Gracious Father, you have spoken to us by your truth, by your scriptures. Now we stand before you and ask, would you, would you make this truth clear in our hearts? Would you open our minds? Would you open our hearts to receive your truth, to see Christ in the midst of these miracles, to see the power that he has given, has, has received from you? Lord, we pray that you would let Christ exert his power among us so that people might come to know the Lord Jesus and be saved. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Tokens of the power of Jesus for salvation. We come to the end of chapter 9. Two short accounts, two short miracles that Peter performed. Um, we read this passage in the deacons' meeting this past week. And uh, after we finished reading the passage, they were, as you saw, they were pretty short. There was silence in the room. Okay, Samuel, what's coming out of this? You could, you could sense the, whoa, is, is this something we should do? What, what should we do about this passage? Well, performing miracles is not new in the book of Acts. As, as if you've been around uh, for the last few weeks, you've seen that. But raising a dead body is. It's actually quite unique. It only happens one more in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, when the apostle Paul raised Eutychus from the dead because Eutychus fell asleep at Paul's preaching. Makes me feel good. I thought of these two scenarios, there is no other account of people being raised from the dead except when Jesus does it. And then if we look to the Old Testament, there's only one account, Elisha um, raising up a, a dead body, dead boy. So what we have here is rather unique miracles, even for the apostles, and even for Peter, this is the only one he does. What are these stories about? What, what are we supposed to get from these miracles? What do they intend to communicate to us? 
And why is Luke including them here at this point in the book of Acts? Well, up until now in chapter 9, and here's a little context, um, the focus was, especially in the last few chapters, the focus was on Saul, on the conversion that the Lord did in his own life, and, and, and as we have seen in chapter 9. And now in verse 32, the focus shifts back to Peter. Peter had been the sort of the, the star of the disciples, if you will, the, the spotlight uh, from the beginning of this book. And now the shift goes back to him. These two miracles prepare the landscape for perhaps the greatest event in, um, in the book of Acts in terms of, of, of gospel work, in terms of evangelism, the conversion of Cornelius. Uh, he will be a, a huge, huge stepping stone because by his conversion, we now see in the most clear ways what the Ethiopian eunuch hinted at earlier in chapter 7. That the gospel is going beyond Jewish lines. The gospel is going beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. The gospel is going beyond ethnic Israel. But all that is in chapter 10. We'll see that explained in, in next week. But, but now, in, this, in, these, few la in last, these last few verses, we see these miracles. What are they about? They sort of prepare the way. They prime the way to see what the salvation that Jesus brought, what that salvation is truly about. It's powerful. It's grandiose. And these prepare the way to understand that the salvation God came to bring through Christ is able to restore all of life, is able to restore even disease, is able to restore even a dead body. Both of these miracles are intentionally given side by side, and they drive home the same point. Think of them, um, if you like a, a picture of a, of a song, think of them as two stanzas. Each of them have, have little, the different details, but the refrain is the same. And the refrain is, is given in verse 35, and then again in verse 42. In verse 35, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. In verse 42, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. That's, that's what these miracles are able to, to lead to, to show who Jesus is in such a way that people return to the Lord. Both of these miracles remind us of the power of Jesus for salvation. That's what these miracles are about. They show that Jesus indeed is indeed able to rescue, to heal, to undo the curse of death that Adam triggered in the Garden of Eden. These miracles are not about health. These miracles are not even just about physical life. They're ultimately about the power of Jesus to save. So that's why I entitled this message, Tokens of the Power of Jesus for Salvation. How are these miracles signs of the power of Jesus for salvation? Well, they show us three things about, about Jesus. Jesus is indeed sent by God. Jesus is indeed sent by God. The second point, if you like to take notes, here's the outline. The second point is Jesus was indeed present in the word 
of the apostles. Jesus was indeed present in the word of the apostles. And third, Jesus is indeed able to restore life. Jesus is indeed able to restore life. Well, what, what do these miracles say about Jesus? Jesus was indeed sent by God. The story begins by telling that Peter came to visit the saints that lived at Lydda. This gives us a hint that the paralyzed man may not have been a non-believer. He may have been one of those saints. Um, and this parallels Tabitha, who is clearly uh, a saint, a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Also, since there's no mention that Aeneas believed in the Lord Jesus after the healing, it's likely that he, he already believed before the healing. So we have here possibly uh, the healing of a believer. When, we encounter, when Peter encounters him, look at verse 34. Peter tells him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. What an unexpected news. Unlike any other miracles that we see in the life of Jesus or in the book of Acts where people might be begging or coming to ask for healing, in this passage, it seems like Peter just initiated without necessarily being asked. Peter just comes up and says to Aeneas, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And then after this announcement, Peter gives him a command. Rise and roll up your bed. Now, what's interesting about this command is that Peter is ordering him to do that which only God can do. This man cannot rise on his own power. He can't make himself get up, even if he wants to. And yet here, Peter commands him to do something that only God can make possible. Rise and roll up your bed. And by attributing this healing to Jesus, Peter is giving a pretty bold hint of who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, accomplishing the same works that God the Father does, the, the same kind of miracles that God the Father has done in the Old Testament. Now, remember in John 5, the passage that, that Ryan read earlier in our service? The Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Jesus because he was calling his own father, God his own father, and made himself equal to God. And Jesus responded to them, and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And then Jesus begins listing witnesses that prove that Jesus is truly the Son of God. In verse 36, Jesus says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness that the Father has sent me. So when Peter says to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, Peter is telling this man of who Jesus is. Jesus is doing the work of his Father. God himself is healing this man through Jesus. Remember what John the Baptist, um, at one point he, becomes, he becomes disillusioned and starts questioning if Jesus is truly the sent one, the one they had expected to restore and to bring their redemption from, and freedom from captivity. 
John the Baptist at one point, perhaps in frustration, sends messengers to Jesus from prison. And he says, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John the Baptist, who had baptized Jesus, who had seen the, the testimony of, of God in, in the baptism of Jesus in the, in the dove, now he's asking, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And Jesus answered to him in Matthew 11, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind re receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The signs that Jesus made accompanying the message of the gospel that Jesus proclaimed are pointers that Jesus is the one sent by the Father. These miracles are signs that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, he was the one they had waited for to bring about God's salvation. He was sent by God with a message of good news and the message of true freedom, the freedom that we experience not just when our country is made independent. I mean, that, that, that's good. That's nice. Praise God for that. The Jews were expecting the same thing. They never got to experience that in that kind of way. But Jesus came to bring another freedom, a greater freedom, a deeper freedom, the freedom that we experience when we are cleansed from our sin, when we are freed from the bondage of corruption and death. Remember how Jesus started his ministry? He preached by commanding, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. How could people know that the kingdom of God was near? How could they see and perceive with their physical eyes that which we can, can only be seen and experienced by a new birth? We're unable to see the kingdom of God unless we're born from above. And yet Jesus came to proclaim this kingdom. How will people see it? Well, they can only see it in tokens, in symbols. And those symbols, part of those symbols are the miracles that Jesus has done. Jesus' miracles were physical pointers to show that indeed God sent Jesus to usher in, to bring about the reign of God among people. That's why people, uh, Peter makes explicit to Aeneas that it is Jesus who heals him. And thus this miracle is proof that Jesus was indeed sent by God. Friend, have you ever considered that when Jesus performed miracles, the aim was not just to heal people? That was, that was a side effect. That was, that was the, the benefit. But the purpose of the miracles was to display the identity of Jesus, was to display who Jesus is. And if that's the primary aim of the miracles, then the question of how often miracles happen is somewhat misguided. Also, the question of who gets to benefit from a miracle is really secondary. When people care more about the beneficiary of a miracle 
than about the one who's able to make them, they miss the point. Oftentimes, and have you heard people, why is God healing so-and-so, but God did not heal this person that I care about? Right? Those, those are, those are, that's human logic. We hear the pain of that because we want God to do the same miracles today in the same way, right? But that's not the primary point of the miracles. The focus of the miracles is not about us. The focus of the miracles is about the one who makes them, who he is. And our hearts are supposed to be amazed and embraced in this beauty of who Jesus is, that he's able to make such miracles. So the miracles of Jesus show that Jesus indeed was sent by God. There's a second point about these miracles, these two miracles. They show that Jesus was present in the words of the apostles. They show that Jesus was present in the words of the apostles. An important part of the gospel message is that Jesus, after being raised from the dead, was physically resurrected to heaven to sit at the right hand of God, to reign um, with God over his kingdom. And an important part of the gospel message is that Jesus is coming back. If he didn't come back, we could live on however we want to. But if Jesus is coming back to judge the world of its evil and of its wickedness, then there is something we should look forward to. There is a day of accountability. There's a day of restoration. In this sense, Jesus is not with us because we're still waiting for him to come. And yet, Jesus is still present spiritually. Not only by his spirit, but Jesus is still is present spiritually in the words and works of his disciples. When Peter tells Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, and then and Peter actually gives a command, rise. That command is the command of Christ speaking to a paralysis. When Peter stands in the upper room facing a dead body of Tabitha, Peter gives her a command, Tabitha, rise. By the way, in both commands, Peter uses the same verb. It's the same command. To give such a command to a paralyzed man, or even worse, to, to a dead body, is really insane from a human perspective. I mean, you know, people, people may talk to a funeral service to somebody who's dead. You know, they may talk to them. They might think that the dead person might hear them. I don't know. But clearly, no one expects to speak to that person and say, rise, and to expect a rise. That's just not possible. In both cases, yet, as the words of Peter left his lips, they encountered hopeless situations. A, paral a paralyzed man, a dead body. Human words have power, but not that kind of power. Human words have power, have a lot of power. We, we can express our love for one another. We can encourage one another. We can destroy one another through words. Relationships can be destroyed forever through words. We can humiliate other people through words. We can declare war 
against people through words. We can make peace through wor words. We can do many things with words. But human words do not have the power to confront disease or death. They just don't have that kind of power. And yet, in both scenarios, what does Peter do? He speaks. He gives a command. Rise. And this time, Peter's commands produce effects. Not because Peter had the power in him. Not because Aeneas or Tabitha had the power in them to do something about their situation. The only reason that these commands had power as they came off of Peter's lips is because the presence of Christ was present in the words of Peter. It was the power of Christ that enabled a paralyzed man and a dead woman to respond and be restored to health and to life. Jesus is present in the words of his apostles to offer a command that would bring restoration and freedom to life in the face of illness, in the face of death, in the face of sin. Friends, the presence of Jesus in the words of his disciples is seen also by the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Whenever we speak the wor those words, we speak them to dead people who are dead in their sins. And yet it's the power of Christ present in the words of His disciples that have power to bring life to people who are dead, to bring strength to people who are weak, to bring health to people who are sick. Oh, friends, if you're not a Christian, one of the wonders we experience every time we gather to proclaim the gospel is that through our human words, through simple words, God is making an appeal to people. God is present in the midst of the words that his disciples proclaim. That's a great news, that Christ is present in the simple words of his disciples. That should give us disciples caution of what we say. And that should give us disciples confidence that when we speak simple human words, but they're the words of good news of the gospel. God is present and has power to command, to bring effects into being. Friends, for those of you who are not Christians, the great news of the gospel that we Christians proclaim every time we gather in this place is that God sent Jesus as his only son to become a curse for us. Through his death on the cross, our sins have been paid. Our sins have been cleansed because Jesus took upon himself the curse that our rebellion deserved. It is because of his sacrifice in our place that God is able to bring us back to life. 
and the resurrection of Jesus three days later from the tomb proves that Jesus is able to bring life and restoration to those who would entrust themselves into the hands of God, to those who believe this news about Jesus. Friend, if you've never responded to Christ, I pray that you would see the great need, the weightiness of your sin, the spiritual deathness that you are in, the spiritual weakness, you're unable to do anything about it. The only thing you can do is to cry for mercy to God to save you. That's the only thing you can do. It is God who is able to bring that life in you. And these miracles are tokens. They are symbols of what that salvation is truly about. The salvation of God is not limited just to our physical bodies. But what happens to these believers, to Aeneas and to Tabitha, are pictures of what God is able to do to restore, to heal, to undo the curse of Adam triggered in the garden. Now, Jesus is able to bring back life. Oh, friend, if you would like to know more about this salvation that Jesus came to bring, if you would like to know more about this salvation that we declare to you, I'd love to talk to you more at the end of the service. Pray that you would respond to Christ today. But friends, we should be careful and cautious that what we speak has a power in the presence of Christ. And Peter, when he gets to Tabitha, you know, he, does, he, he doesn't use the word Jesus. Did you notice that? But he does something else, something different. As soon as he gets to the room, he kicks everybody out. Why does he do that? Well, Peter was the only one of the two disciples who accompanied Jesus when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. He saw Jesus first kick out everybody from the room. So Peter, may, very likely, very possible, he's just acting in the footsteps of Jesus. And then what does he do? He kneels and prays. Peter knows there's no power in him. There's no power in him to to do something about this dead body. But he knows someone who has that power. And he knows something else. He knows how to access him. He knows it's through prayer. And in this act of Peter, of even just kneeling to pray, even through his physical body, he is showing a sign of submission. He's showing a sign of dependence. He's showing a sign of helplessness. People who are bow down, they're helpless. Showing both through his body language and through his act of prayer that all of this is dependent upon the Lord. And it is only after that time of prayer that Peter looks to this body and says to this dead body, Tabitha, rise. Jesus is present in the words of his disciples. And then a third truth, the final truth. Jesus is indeed able to restore life. Jesus is indeed able to restore life. John Stott, in his commentary, says that these two miracles point out that the recovery from paralysis and the resuscitation from death were both visible signs of that new life into which, by the power of the resurrection, we sinners are raised. 
these miracles show us the magnitude of the power of God's resurrection. And by that resurrection, we too are raised to a new life. Yes, it gives us a glimpse of the power of God for salvation. Friends, the promise of God to save is not just pie in the sky. It's real. There's an actual power behind it. And these miracles show their signs of the realness, the reality of that power. Notice what is the result um, of these miracles, what, what these miracles end up producing. In verse 34, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. In Yapa, verse 42, and it became known throughout all Yapa, and many believed in the Lord. The reaction of the people tell us that these miracles are really not about the miracles. It's not about the healing. It's not that people came and more of them wanted to be healed. It's no, they heard about this and they wanted to be saved. Why? Because they realized these miracles is not about the healing. It's about the Jesus who is able to do it. And what you want is not the miracle. What you want is Jesus. That's the point. That's the new life that Jesus is truly able to bring to people who are dead spiritually. Life to embrace Jesus. They believe the message about Jesus. And yes, the salvation of Jesus is able to encompass all of life, including our physical bodies as well. A turning away and a belief in Jesus. This is what these miracles were able to, to pave the way to prepare for so these people would believe and turn to Jesus. Did you notice how interesting their response is described, not just as faith in Jesus, but a turn to Jesus? Did you notice that? If you claim to be a believer in Jesus this morning, I wonder if you can describe your faith as a turning to Christ. Or do you just think of faith in Jesus as a kind of mental assent? Oh, yeah, of course, I, I acknowledge, I believe. But can you talk about this faith in Jesus as also a turn to Jesus? Turn from something to Jesus? Turn from sin? Turn from rebellion? Turn from ignorance against God or of God? Turn to embrace Jesus and to follow him? The conversion of these people is not caused by the miracle, but by the power of Jesus. The miracles are pointing to the power of Jesus. Conversions are caused by the power of Jesus, not by miracles. Miracles alone do not produce conversions. Remember how many times Jesus made miracles? And how many times people actually rejected Jesus for the miracles? Miracles alone don't create conversions. But miracles are a sign of the power of Jesus, who is also able to to bring about salvation. These miracles point out that indeed nothing is impossible for Jesus who reigns at the right hand of God. We should never forget that as a result of Jesus' victory, death has lost its sting. So friends, here's a question. As we look at these two miracles, should we expect these today? Why don't more of these happen? today, right? Why, why do we read about this, that, oh, this is what happened in the book of Acts? But 
What's going on today? Why aren't they happening today? Well, friends, let me, let me remind you, some of these miracles happened quite uniquely. And they were not happening all the time, all over. Think of Stephen. He was stoned to death. He wasn't raised. Think of James, the Apostle James, who in chapter 13 will be the first of the 12 who will be persecuted and killed. He won't be raised physically. These miracles happen at God's sovereign hand. Somehow he decides when and how and how many are needed and who's going to be the beneficiary. The issue is not why aren't they happening the same way or the same speed or the same frequency today. The point is, these miracles are tokens. And once you have a token, what you should look forward to is not the token. It's that which it points to. That's the bigger deal. It's the salvation Jesus promised to give. In, in, in an age of entertainment, let me give you another illustration that may help. Think of, think of these miracles as a movie trailer. You know, movie trailers do. They, they give some of the best scenes of a movie. They give enough to tell you what the movie is about without telling the whole movie. Right? They, 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 they tell you what, what you should expect. But you have to wait for the movie to come out before it, you see it all. Uh, miracles in some way are like movie trailers. They give us a sense of what God's salvation will ultimately accomplish. What God's salvation is about. We, we don't get the full picture of it now. We get enough to know what we should expect. In the same way, the, the full movie is what we're told in Revelation 21. This is, this is a full movie. Then I saw then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the movie. We're still in the age of the trailer. And if we ask, why are they happening today, or the same speed, or same frequency, or same way? Because that's God's plan. We're still awaiting for the release date of God's salvation. Until that day, friends, you can be sure that God's plan of salvation, which he announced at first in the Garden of Eden, will come about, will come to fruition. And the resurrection of Jesus is a proof of that. The, the miracles that, that were able to be done in the age of the apostles are proof of that. 
The tokens have been released. We're still expecting that full consummation of God's glory, of God's salvation to come. Friends, let us await expectantly and preach the gospel that brings the good news to those who need to repent. Let us do so in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you that you give us tokens of the reality of your power to save. And these tokens are, are true. They're tangible pictures of an intangible reality. Your salvation is still only visible to people who are born from above. Your reign is only visible to those who are able to, to experience your new birth. Oh, gracious God, we pray that you would grant this new birth to sinners who are still lost in sin. And may the proclamation of your gospel be effective, be powerful, to call about and to bring new life in those who are still in bondage to their sin today. Most gracious Father, thank you that your salvation has power to save. We pray that we would do so today. We pray they would do so until the day when you come again, when all those whom you have called to yourself will be gathered into your eternal kingdom. We pray that your name would be glorified today and forevermore. Amen.